0: Hey, everyone. So our podcast has been nominated for a Paranormality Podcast Award. This is super exciting. We're over the moon that we are even like considered for this. So now we are asking for your help to win the award. This is a voting based award. So the more votes that we get, the more likely we are to win. So here's where you come in. If you go to paranormalitymag.com, and click on the Paranormality Podcast Awards. Just scroll down to the TV and film section, and there you can click on Cadaver Dogs and vote for us. A link to the awards will also be posted in the description of this episode, so go ahead there, check it out. It will literally take you two seconds, and we highly, highly, highly appreciate it. This is so exciting. We are such a small podcast. This means so much and can really do a lot for us. So click the link in the description. Voting ends September 11th. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for constantly supporting us. We really love you, Mutts. Real quick before we begin, in this episode, we do discuss sexual assault. If you are a survivor looking for hope, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's free and totally confidential and available to use 24-7. The number is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. On with the show.
1: Welcome to Cadaver Dogs Podcast, my mating mutts. I'm Rob Basercha. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And unfortunately, Devin Shepard will not be joining the Cadaver Dogs this week. Now, before mm. we get started, please follow us on all social media platforms. That's at Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and eventually we're going to have a YouTube kind of thing going on. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, how's it going, David? It's going good, Rob. How have you been? I just watched, I actually binged the Sandman series on Netflix, which was really good.
2: Okay, don't tell me anything. I bought some of the books to finally read. I've been meaning to read this for like 10 years, but kept putting it off. It seems like something I will dig a lot. Mm, Yeah, there's definitely some parts that I see like exactly in line with
1: David's uh, interests. So uh, the rest of you audience members, if you haven't read the books, uh, go ahead and read them. And if you don't intend to, or you have, I would check out the Netflix series. I think they really nailed a lot of the characters. And yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of Netflix wokeism in there, but that's, you know, the era we're in. And I think that's fine.
2: I, yeah, I don't give a shit about wokeism. I think wokeism is, is fine and great. And it doesn't really sound like there's that much Netflix wokeism that isn't in the books. Neil, Neil Gaiman has just been like, yeah, no, that's that's all pretty accurate to the book.
1: Yeah, uh there's more than the books. Uh I don't know. People
2: are like upset that it's, it's like what is it a, a non-binary person plays a character and Neil Gaiman is just like these are literally abstract entities. Huh. <laughs> He's like what why why do you care about their gender or race? They're abstract entities. They they don't have gender or race. But speaking of DC, I've been playing Arkham Knight on the PS5, which is a great fucking game. You've played some of these Arkham games, right? Yeah. Where would you classify them on the spectrum of horror? Like, they're not quite horror, but they're not not horror.
1: Mm. Uh, well, I wouldn't consider them horror. Uh, they're, they're more like open world, kind of like a sandbox games. But there are some yeah. like horror... Things that happen like Clayface and some of the other villains are pretty scary.
2: Yeah, like Mad Hatter and Arkham City.
1: Batman comics in general have some pretty creepy villains, and I think that's kind of the appeal of Batman as a superhero.
2: Arkham Knight actually has like w- one of the best jump scares I've seen in a game so far. Really? Uh huh. Um, I don't want to spoil what it is, but it's you're just. Going around the city, doing your thing, and then all of a sudden, with no warning whatsoever, there's a fucking jump scare, and I just like,
1: "Holy what!"
2: <laughs> That's kind of the appeal
1: of just any kind of like mixing of genre in general, mm. uh, because things that are unexpected are the ones that are gonna impact you the most. Speaking of video games, though, I I believe you just played through a bunch of the uh, Resident Evil games, yes. which is cool because. A Resident Evil show just came out on Netflix, and I've watched two or three episodes. There's a few parts that are really good. Overall, I'm not really loving it.
2: I've heard it's bad. I haven't watched it myself.
1: Yeah, but the zombie dog is fucking so cool.
2: <laughs> the zombie dogs in those games kill me every fucking time.
1: <laughs> They're the hardest enemies. They're really creepy. I
2: know. Why is the dog the hardest enemy? It's just it's so random. You never know where it's gonna go.
1: <laughs> dogs, <laughs> and you, you know. Hit.
2: <laughs> I I'm just oh, in the man. old
1: in the old video games they were like crows or something and they were just fucking kill you all the time <laughs> because the aiming was so bad and they're tiny.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I just played uh Resident Evil 7 last week, um, which was probably my favorite in the franchise after the Resident Evil 2 remake. It's just the cinematics of it are so overwhelmingly amazing and the gameplay is very grounded. Every enemy feels like a really serious threat, and that's really cool. In that game, if there are two enemies, then I'm like, "Ah, I got to get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of Survivor Horror
1: done correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hoping a lot of our listeners kind of play that line of, I'm going to play horror video games and watch horror media. So hopefully we're not losing you guys by having this quick discussion before (laughs) we get into the full-fledged episode. But survival Horror is kind of about making your character feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you do that is by making every encounter deadly. Now, a lot of video games kind of take on this power trip idea. You know, even like Batman, you're beating everyone up or you're the doom guy. You're killing everything. Whereas like the original Resident Evils, you walked like a like an idiot. You had tank controls and you bounced into walls. And Amy, you would like go to the floor, or middle or up top. And it was really hard to shoot anything. And in real life, you know, I, I feel like movies don't portray this properly if you don't know how to shoot a gun, they're kind of hard to shoot. I don't know if any of you guys have gone shooting before. It's really difficult to shoot a target, especially from across the room and like beeline it in the head. So uh, I think it's called like Dark Knight of the Demons or something. It's like a Tales from the Crypt movie. And I have to shoot the demons in the eyes <laughs> to kill them. And all these random people are just like snipering one shot, no scope, getting these demons in the eye and green flame comes out and they die. And I'm like, damn it, dude. Like, I've shot before and I can't do that. I would just die.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to play uh, Resident Evil 8. I just got in the mail, so I'll be playing that after Arkham Knight. I just played that and uh, yeah, it's really exciting.
1: It is definitely more action. It's kind of like the love child between 7 and 4. Okay. Speaking of extreme violence, I'm going to kick it off this week with our uh, rundown of the first film and this is a horror classic. It's an icon of horror. It has one of the greatest characters ever to come out of a franchise. (laughs) The year is 1958. Crystal Lake. Two camp counselors sneak off to fool around for the last time. A mysterious killer slashes them to ribbons. 20 years later, 1979. Camp Crystal Lake is reopening. Annie Phillips hitches a ride from town despite the warnings from town crazy Ralph. Closer to the camp, she's dropped off where she hits another ride. And again, that is her last. The unseen killer, apparently still at large, chases her into the woods and ends her life. Back at camp, camp owner Steve directs a gaggle of young people in an effort to rebuild and reopen the camp. Even Kevin Bacon is there. But one at a time, the teens are butchered, left like macabre art pieces for the survivors to discover. Steve heads into town on a rainy night, but doesn't make it back. Bacon is pierced through the neck from under the bed with a really awesome special effect. Strip Monopoly precedes Slice and Dice tell Alice is the last a car pulls up into the camp Alice rushes to who she thinks is Steve and instead is met by Mrs Voorhees Voorhees inspects the camp lamenting they're so young she tells Alice of her son Jason who drowned in the lake in 1957 igniting the massacres that followed Mrs Voorhees and Alice then fight to the death culminating in Alice decapitating her assailant with a machete Alice enters a canoe drifting off into the lake exhausted the police arrive in the morning calling out to Alice she rises to greet them as a zombified creature emerges from the lake, pulling her beneath the water. She awakes days later in a white hospital, which tells the police the boy pulled her into the lake. But they never found a boy. This is slasher classic Friday the 13th, released in 1980 to critical failure and commercial acclaim. Directed by Sean S. Cunningham and spawned more than 10 sequels over the next 30 years.
2: And written by Victor Miller, I want to add in, and effects by Tom Savini. The mm. master himself. And I got to tell you, some of those effects still hold up really good. I think all the effects are good. The Kevin Bacon stab through the neck from under the bed <laughs> looks real. So if you look at the spear one closely, then you'll see that the blood is actually bubbling. And the reason that happened was because the rig wasn't quite working. And uh, Savini, when he blowed on the tube thing that shoots the blood himself, and they got bubbles in there, but they decided to just keep it. So that's actually not realistic, but it kind of just works anyway even though it makes no sense. That's okay, though, because it just looks cool and gritty.
1: And this movie has amazing cinematography. The last few shots at the end, when she fades into the image of the lake, that is a fantastic shot. It's kind of incredible that you could have this kind of like B-horror slasher film with that good of cinema work. It's almost as good as, I want to say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is my
2: personal nah, favorite slasher. I will not going to go that far. I, I, I'll agree that it's well shot, but I'm not going to go as far as comparing with Texas Chainsaw. But on that note, I actually wanted to ask, there are like a million slasher movies that came out in 1980 and 1981. So out of all of them, what about Friday the 13th specifically, do you think is it that made it such a cultural phenomenon that we're still talking about it and watching it 40 years later? Holy fuck. (laughs) It's been more than 40 years since this film has uh, been released. And, you know, I kind
1: of think this is a discussion where we can finally talk about that delineation of, like, liberal horror and, like, conservative horror. This is kind of the end of the era of the 60s and 70s when, like, free love was accepted by the zeitgeist. And this is where we enter an age where there is a strong movement for re-entering family values and like biblical values, you know? Uh, Strip monopoly precedes slice and dice. I actually stole that little quib from one of the videos you showed me on uh, YouTube that was talking about Reaganism and uh, the way this, (laughs) and
2: slashers in the 80s. Guys, someone else just brought up Ronald Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me this time <laughs> although it was a video i shared so i guess it was kind of me
1: it was but you know what's cool <laughs> last week or last month i should say we talked about abortion roe versus wade in the movies mm. it's alive and sop deck now this is another movie that was directly affected by the roe versus wade movement which allowed the anti-abortion or the pro-life congregation to kind of solidify into a single movement that they later gained power in the 80s and this is exemplified in this type of film where a biblical force kills young people for enjoying themselves and doing things that are sinful air quotes
2: yeah we've talked about some of this before but basically there was this movement around this time that was bolstered largely by evangelicals uh I, I, I don't want to make like a super anti-religion argument or anything, but just saying, historically speaking, a lot of this was held up by evangelicals and puritanism and whatnot of family values, uh, abstinence, homophobia, or on drugs, blah, blah, blah. All these people are doing are is wrong. Fuck the free rebel people, but no fucking. Uh, <laughs> and this is the movement that Led to Reagan's election, that he was largely supported by televangelists. And whatnot. I'm not saying this very eloquently, but you you get what I'm saying.
1: I think the point you're getting across is pretty clear. This is a conservative movement, uh, rooted in mm-hmm. religion, that pushed forward a political campaign, and it also affected our media. And what's interesting is that the political campaign was not interested in movies like this, which is weird because it kind of pushes their agenda. Like In a way, we could almost blame the victims for getting killed for the things they did. And it seems like the most pure of the victims is usually the one who survives in these films, the final girl, Alice. Now, I know we had a disagreement where it isn't clear that she's virgin, and she probably isn't because she actually has some sort of relationship with Steve, who's older than her.
2: But Steve Uh. is more of
1: a family man.
2: I I don't think she has a relationship with Steve. I think Steve is hitting on her and she's not into it. Really? Yeah, I, I, I got the impression that she was skeeved by it. I, I didn't read that oh. as her being into it at all. No, I, I got the impression that they
1: have an ongoing thing going, but she doesn't like being at the camp. And that's why oh. he was like, give it another chance, you know, because he was really into her. That's what I got the impression of.
2: Um, I will say, though, I don't know that this movie is actually supporting these values. I think that they are heavily exemplified through Pamela, Pamela Voorhees, but but I mean she's the villain of the movie and at the end she even like she touches Alice's hair in a way that is very similar to how Steve does it in the beginning of the movie. Oh, that's and I a good. I feel point. like it's I don't know if the movie's doing this intentionally or not, but I, I think that you can easily look at that and read a parallel between Pamela and Steve that Pamela is in denial of.
1: Mm. Well, you know, that is a good point. But part of me all also wants to say that it seems like the media often misunderstands films. Like mm-hmm. a good example is Starship Troopers, which if mm. you watch it with any kind of critical eye is clearly a satire, but it seems like at the time, a lot of critics missed that point. Which is really weird. You you could almost see them like kind of holding this up as like a reefer madness type of film because there's a lot of similarities between reefer madness, where you know young people are smoking pot and having fun, so they got to die, and that's the way it is. (laughs) And still, like Alice is less promiscuous than the other girls. You know, she's less likely to get in cars with strangers. She's less likely to have skeevy ideas. She's less likely to sneak off and sleep with her boyfriend.
2: So I. I'm uncertain about this. I'm I'm kind of on the fence. I think that Alice mm-hmm. is not very fleshed out as a character. Right. She's a little bit I don't know what to make of her. Like I, I I don't think she has a lot of personality. I I think she's just the character who does the least stuff. But that doesn't mean she's not interested in this stuff. Like when Brenda says, "Let's play a strip poker." Alice is just like, "Hell yeah, let's play strip poker."
1: I think that's a fair criticism of pretty much all the characters. Most of them are pretty one-dimensional. Yeah. If they have any kind of dimension. But
2: I still, like, know what most of them want. Like, I understand that that Marcy absolutely is into having sex, actually just with her boyfriend. She doesn't show any interest in having sex with anyone other than her boyfriend, (laughs) which is interesting. Yeah. Because you think of all these characters as super promiscuous, but most of them are also really monogamous. That's kind of the point. It's literally just like premarital
1: sex. It's not sex with anyone. it's It's premarital sex. It's not extreme. Most of the things they're doing is pretty tame. Even the first two Mm -hmm. people, I think they're unnamed characters who were killed in the 50s. And that precedes the uh, closing down of the camp. They're like doing sing-alongs of really like cutesy songs as they sneak off to have like, you know, this like little like... Ooh, I'm being bad while well, my parents are watching kind of like sex thing. And you're like, wait a minute, like why do they deserve to die? So in that way, I think you are correct that this movie is being critical of the hypervaluation of family values and like the way they persecute people for doing relatively um, you know, inconsequential things.
2: And I think again, I don't know how much credit I give the movie in terms of thinking this stuff out, but I want to argue about Annie for a minute. Annie is the brunette girl who is kind of set up to be the final girl that after the 50s flashback, she's the first person you're introduced to. She's the one who we're sort of following into the camp, and then she gets killed off before anyone else.
1: Yo, what is the point of her character? Just to die? Like, she's literally just like a vehicle to get a little bit of backstory, and then she dies. Is there anything more? Yeah.
2: In one sense, I I do actually just see it as a bait and switch where I think we are meant to latch onto her as the final girl and then realize, oh, fuck, she's not the final girl. Who's the final girl? Anyone could die. I think that's part of it. But She's also not established to be a virgin in any way. She is happy to hitchhike and whatnot, so she seems to be fully into the free love movement and whatnot from the little bit that we get of her. She's also like super excited to be working with kids. She's like, oh, yeah, this is my dream is to, to help children. We're going to be working with inner city kids like she, she, she's out to do good things for people. And She's at very least good hearted.
1: You could say that pretty much about all the characters in this film is that they all oh, yeah. kind of come from a place of a good heart. And that's why, although they're not fleshed out characters, you do, Ned. you do feel kind of bad when they die. Which one's Ned? Remind me.
2: The, the fool.
1: He's the one who's,
2: like, just pranking everyone the entire time. (laughs) He's such a dick. (laughs) He's a complete dick. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and he gets shot in the eyes with arrows. But the point I was trying to make with Annie is that she doesn't actually fit the archetype that Pamela is pushing onto her at all. There's nothing about her to fit that archetype to suggest that she does. In fact, she is even going to be the cook at the camp, which is what Pamela's job was. She's not a counselor. She's the cook.
1: Oh. So you think that she kind of mirrors Pamela's uh, time as a teen, maybe? Because it's never discussed, like, who's Jason Voorhees' father.
2: That's true. I never even thought of that. But and, yeah, that's very true. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: and so Pamela Voorhees is kind of taking out her own hatred on herself for, like not respecting the family values or whatever, and like protecting her son and then taking it on these teams. So there is a mirroring. And, and I like how you pointed that out with Annie, because I didn't realize this cook thread, but she's probably very similar to Annie because you could argue that she went to this camp on her own. She also had a child, but there, there's no husband to speak of, unless you think Ralph might be the husband or something.
2: So the point I was actually getting at was that Pamela was basically scapegoating them and not paying attention to any of their individual humanity. But I like this point a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Pamela's own past what was basically Annie. She is Annie grown up. Mm-hmm. That she probably... Like, yeah, you're right. We never... I mean, she's called Mrs. Voorhees, so we can assume she's married, maybe, but we don't know what happened to her dad. She's probably someone she met at the camp. It could be.
1: Yeah. It's never explained, um, to my knowledge. Actually, she isn't even giving a first name in this film. I think we find out in like Jason Four.
2: Oh, really? Is she not called Pamela? Okay.
1: No, no. She's Mrs. Voorhees. I think she finds out uh, the first name when we see her gravestone in like Friday the 13th Four or something.
2: Isn't that part two? Well, part two, we see her severed head, I think. It's Mm -hmm. been a while since I watched all the early ones.
1: These movies get so jumbled in my brain because I've seen them over the years, and there's so many of them. (laughs) We only see Jason at the very end when he pops out of the water to pull uh, Alice into the lake.
2: Which is itself an iconic shot. It looks awesome, too. It's kind of weird in a movie because I I, I think in the terms of sequels, it's established that that was fully just a fantasy nightmare sequence, and it's not... Didn't really happen, but the movie itself seems to be ambiguous with it because then Alice is all like, you didn't find him. So he's still there. It's like, okay,
1: it was genius to get a sequel. It makes perfect sense. He pops up, kills her. It was a supernatural element that's hinted at. And in the sequel, he's still alive.
2: Yeah. The implication is definitely that he just simply survived and was living in the woods for all these years. It's unclear if Pamela knew that or not. And watching the first one, it, it, it's believable to me that she had him this whole time, but is just saying that he died for the sake of making her argument, or mm. maybe even is just, I mean, she's completely bonkers. Uh- <laughs> Very bizarre. Yeah, the second
1: movie doesn't exactly make sense, because I don't even think he's zombified. I think that's more of like a later iteration where he's a zombified. Yeah, zombified
2: is part six.
1: Yeah, and he's kind of like a like a demon later on in the series. I think at nine, he possesses people. Yeah,
2: that one's dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd even finish
1: that one, honestly.
2: That's, that's the worst one in the series by far. It's so bad.
1: Well we're on the topic of final girls, I mean, what do you think of Alice as a final girl? I, I kind of feel like, I, I guess I said this earlier, most of the characters are kind of one dimensional.
2: So I feel like she's passable. She looks good as the final girl. I mean, they're all one-dimensional, but she's zero-dimensional. <laughs> I don't know what she is. I don't understand her character. I, I don't know what she wants or anything about her. I, I think her entire personality is just her wardrobe.
1: Uh, Yeah, I, I think they were trying to go for she's like the odd duck in this group. Like, she doesn't want to be there. She's talking about leaving. She has the older boyfriend. Like, she isn't one of them. I think there's a distinction between her and the other characters that they're trying to go through, but they don't do a very good job of establishing.
2: Maybe. that It that is possible that
1: that is the case, yeah. And hence, to the theme of final girls, which, I mean, Friday the 13th is like the poster child of, since she's not like them, she's more deserving of life, which is kind of this idea that, you know, sex is kind of sin. Right? If you engage in sex and drugs, you deserve to die, hence the Reaganism.
2: It also might be a modern perspective thing because, again, if her entire personality is her wardrobe, basically she's dressed very tomboyish. She has like a very short, short hair. In modern lens, that just looks like, oh, she's very independent and free minded. But back then, it might have been like, oh, she's one of the boys. She doesn't do that stuff. Maybe.
1: I don't know if I would call her one of the boys, but I would definitely say that she's less sexualized than the other characters.
2: She is less sexualized. But that doesn't mean she's less interested in sex. I don't know. It's it's hard to pin. Well, I mean, uh, since
1: we're not getting any more, that's what we have to go off of. So I think like Yeah. The way the characters look is what we have to assume they are, since there's not much more. Like Kevin Bacon's character, I, what the fuck does he do? He fucks. He's he's a guy who fucks and can fix an engine. I mean that's that's it. Then he dies.
2: He listens to Marcy talk about her dream. Mm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, he seems like a nice boyfriend, actually.
2: Yeah, he actually seems pretty nice.
1: Yeah, he seems like a nice boyfriend, and he gets murdered. And Steve seems like a nice guy. You know, he tips the uh, waitress at the diner well, and then he gets murdered.
2: Well, I read his scene with Alice differently than you did. I thought he was creeping on her. But you read it as they actually have an established relationship. So that definitely changes how you read that character. Yeah, yeah,
1: 100%. One of the things that I, I find cool and kind of dated about this movie is the POV killer. Now that's reminiscent of Black Christmas and I guess some scenes in Halloween and even Jaws, which I've heard it compared to where you don't really mm. know who's doing the killing until later. And I think it's kind of a cool tactic because it builds suspense. Every scene feels as if there's an intruder coming in. And even if you don't want to have the killer there, if you use a cam shop, it feels as if something's intruding on the scene. What do you think?
2: I mean, it's definitely ripping off Halloween. Uh, Victor Miller, I think, actually said that he learned how to write a horror movie by watching Halloween. And there are a lot of other shots in the movie that I think are just Halloween recycled. Like, uh, I think it's Steve who falls from a tree when it's his dead body. And it looks exactly like the the one person falling out the closet in Halloween where they fall upside down and whatnot. I'm like, this is literally just Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it is effective in hiding the identity of the killer, and I've never had the experience of watching this movie without knowing it was Pamela, so I, I don't know if I would have guessed it or not. Did, it, did they even mention Jason before Pamela is revealed?
1: Uh, they mentioned a kid drowned in the lake. That's it. Okay. And it's kind of off the cuff. It's like a kid drowned in the lake. There were fires and murders. That's all we hear. Pamela is an unknown until she's revealed. I saw this for the first time when I was 13 or 14 years old, I think, and I watched like all of them. I had no idea Jason wasn't in the first movie. I remember I was yeah. watching them, like, when's he pop in with the ski mask? Like, I had but no again, idea. But again,
2: that's a modern lens, knowing that all, all of the stuff that happened came after. So I'm talking if you went completely blind and didn't even know who Jason was, then. Right. If you watched this in 1980. Yeah, but I didn't know Pamela was the killer.
1: And I think having it be a woman and a mother was probably a pretty cool twist.
2: Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it goes back to the Reagan thing, too, because we're talking about characters' wardrobe. Let's talk about Pamela's wardrobe. She is even shorter-haired than Alice, and she's wearing a freaking sweater vest. Like, she looks like the most innocent, concerned mother. Mm. She definitely would vote for Reagan. Uh, which this would have come out during Reagan's first election cycle. So, you know, let's not pretend that this came out in the middle of his presidency, but definitely came out in that climate that mm. set up for him getting elected.
1: She's basically Nancy Reagan, like she's projecting <laughs> these family values like onto the screen mm-hmm. and anyone who's against them is the enemy. They're the other and we need to
2: kind of slay them. She even describes sex as making love. <laughs> <laughs> she says... The counselors weren't watching my kid. They were busy making love. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, and
1: as probably the best actor of this movie. Oh my God, she's so
2: weird, but also so earnest. And it this performance actually like kind of makes you trust her before you learn that she's the, the slasher. She She's a really good actor. She did this just because she wanted a new car. Yeah, <laughs> she hated <yeah>. the
1: script. <laughs> i uh disagree i think some was left to be desired even with her performance but uh i mean all the, it's the best performance in the movie so you're like okay but it's a lot better than crazy ralph he's fucking terrible
2: i i i shot a, a parody of slasher movies a few years ago and my dad played our harbinger he, he doesn't watch slashers so i That's just showed dad. Him clips. yeah i think that he just took the crazy ralph clips and just ran with it
1: <laughs> that's bl- blind spot
2: what's it called blind spot blind spot yeah yeah blind <laughs> that movie's fucking hilarious very funny devin's in Thank the you. movie too which is great she is my my dad says don't you know these woods are abandoned and then devin looks at him and she goes why are these woods so abandoned <laughs> it's the stupidest <laughs> line it shouldn't be funny but but devin is hilarious
1: but, but you know what's cool about pamela like she is an Nancy reagan type character but if we look deeper beneath the layers she's pretending because she was there there's no father in the mix and she was a uh a cook at the camp like what's her deal but
2: that's that's a lot of reaganites not all reaganites but i feel like i mean there's this trope which i wasn't around during the time so i don't know how true it is but the old parable is that uh they were all the free love people and then they grew up and they voted for Reagan.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think this movie is actually commenting on that. Uh maybe subconsciously mm. because it's kind of a superficial script, but it's saying that these people who are pretending to be holier than now, they're like kind of bloodthirsty at the end of the yeah. day. And that was true of the administration that was selling crack cocaine to fund foreign wars and, you know, allowing the AIDS epidemic to kill people that they deemed not fit to save. It was I think it's kind of uh, enlightening and spot on.
2: I love your take that Annie becomes Pamela. And I guess that'll kind of bring us into our next movie. It really does. And this next film,
1: I think, compares protagonist and antagonist even better
2: Mm. than Friday the 13th. David, give us the uh, plot summary. 1979, again, this time in Texas. The home video market is booming and six people seek to seize the opportunity for profit by making an independent film. To be specific, a porno. They rent out the guest house on a small farm owned by an elderly couple and film their movie in what they believe to be in secret. Crewing the movie is a couple just out of film school, RJ and Lorraine. RJ is excited to bring a cinematic lens to this genre which so often lacks it. But as Lorraine aka church mouse watches the porn with judging eyes something shifts and for reasons we'll no doubt get into she suddenly asks to be in the movie Argy is not happy about being forced to film his girlfriend have sex with another man and abandons the film running right into pearl as the old woman who lives in the house as her husband howard explains she gets confused it happens sometimes after dark But she's not possessed or anything like that, she's just really sad that she doesn't get to have sex anymore. She misses the days when she was special. Now stalking these porn stars, she sees something special in Maxine. Probably because they're played by the same actor. Entranced, Pearl goes about making moves toward Maxine, yearning for the days when she was young. And so when RJ flees the shoot and encounters Pearl in the driveway, she asks him to look at her the way he looked at them but he doesn't want to. He's grossed out by her. So she kills him. I mean, this is a horror movie. Where do you think we were going with it? Pearl kills off the cast and crew one by one with the help of her husband, Howard, who would do anything for her. Eventually, we're left with just one. The one who Pearl was so entranced by, Maxine. With her friends dead, with her boyfriend, the producer Wayne, dead, Maxine is obviously repulsed by Pearl and rejects any connection. Now bitter enemies, Pearl tells Maxine that she's nothing but a deviant little whore and that we're the same, to which Maxine simply says, no, I'm a fucking star. Anyway, Howard has a heart attack. Pearl tries to shoot Maxine, but she's old and feeble, so the kickback breaks her hip. And then Maxine drives a car over Pearl's head, while the old woman warns her that she's not special. It'll all be taken from her. This is X, written and directed and produced by Ty West, starring Mia Gough. And Mia Goth. Thanks for that
1: quick rundown of the plot summary. So, one of the things I find really interesting is that Mia Goth plays two different characters, both the protagonist and the antagonist. Why do you Mm -hmm. think they chose to make that decision?
2: Good question. Most obvious, I would say that Pearl clearly sees herself in Maxine. And that is exemplified very well by the fact that it's literally the same person, even though I had no idea of that on my first watch of the movie. Uh, I found out in the credits when I said, huh, they didn't credit whoever played Pearl. What's up with that? Who played Pearl? You're not alone. (laughs) I didn't know that either. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people didn't know that the makeup. Completely hides it. No one knows that's the same person.
1: It's really good makeup. It's really good makeup.
2: Uh, but I think that on a more thematic level, you can talk about, like, okay, why does she see herself in Maxine? That there is a similarity between the two characters. Like we were saying with Annie and Pamela, that Annie becomes Pamela, Maxine becomes Pearl. Not literally, it's not time travel, but Maxine is who Pearl was and Pearl is Maxine's future. There's some cool shots that play off of this, like when Pearl is watching Maxine have sex, it it match cuts as though Pearl is also having sex in the same position. Hmm. And this isn't just now cutting back and forth between the two characters, it's also cutting back and forth between Mia Goth as a young person versus Mia Goth as an old person. We're all going to be old. George Romero said in his movie, The Amusement Park, someday you too will be old. And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills to the landside brought me down.
1: Yeah, they they sing that song in the movie.
2: It's so good. I do like
1: how they play uh, music in the movie, and it's very reminiscent of Friday the 13th, actually, now that I think about it. But mm. I don't necessarily see Pearl as the inevitable end of... Uh, Maxine. I think Hmm. I see her as a possibility. And it's the possibility that Maxine really doesn't want because she wants to have it all. She wants to make sure that she doesn't end up in this sad state of things. And I think it's being kind of critical of the way the youth viewed the elderly at that time period. And maybe even today. Yeah.
2: (laughs) There's definitely this running theme where like uh, Wayne is the producer and Maxine's boyfriend. He keeps reminding her, like, you're special, you're special, you're special. And then at the end of the movie, Pearl tells her, you're not special. He uses those exact <laughs> words. <laughs> and Pearl keeps talking about how, like, oh, I thought I was special, too. Right. She's like, you're just
1: like me. And Maxine's like, no, you're not. I'm not just like you. I am way fucking better. So I'm going to drive in <laughs> your face with this car. <laughs> her head explodes. That part was cool. I like how she broke her hip, too.
2: We were just talking about how hard it is to shoot things. And the other thing with shooting things is that there's kickback. And Mm. if you're old and you're not expecting that kickback from a fucking shotgun.
1: But yeah, like depending on the caliber, a shotgun, for instance, does have a lot of kickback on your arm. Mm -hmm. I think the movie is a little over the top at blowing her off her feet through a doorway. But I mean, (laughs) she's like 100 years old. How fuck old are these people supposed to be? They're literally like walking skin sacks. They look so
2: fucking old. I mean, the makeup is definitely a little bit exaggerated. I think she looks more realistic than he does. But I also I'm fine with them being a bit exaggerated and over the top because I think that it adds to the movie. I mean, the the younger characters are so repulsed by them. So I yeah. like that it is an exaggerated version of old age.
1: Oh, yeah. It's like squishy. Like you can feel like the hanging like papery skin and how gross and squishy it feels. And that definitely adds to the horror fact. But it's also Mm. like part of me just felt a little guilty uh, looking at old people and being repulsed because in general, like old people don't make me feel repulsed. I'm kind of almost drawn to old people because I had such a relationship with my grandparents that I don't have that like ew kind of effect. But it does a really good job of making me feel gross and ew. Ew.
2: It wants you to feel gross about it, but then it also wants you to question why you feel so gross about it.
1: Because they made gross makeup. It's not super <laughs> old. <laughs> right. <laughs> what else did you have to say about the uh, comparisons of these two characters? About how one is like the potential of losing everything that you hold valuable. Because Maxine measures her worth through her physical ability on screen, right? It's not about her brain, it's about her acting potential and her sexuality. And those are the things that Pearl also measures her value by. And I I think the movie is not necessarily making a very nuanced statement about sexual value in women.
2: And men. Definitely favoring on the women. I mean, it's clearly intentional that all the men die first so that all the women are saved for later and get to keep that dynamic alive for longer. But I mean, they have like literally, they sit down and have an entire conversation about the ethics of sex.
1: Yeah, kind. It's, I I wouldn't say it's a very interesting conversation because like the characters don't really bring anything to highlight. It's kind of a juvenile conversation, really. Uh, They're just like, we can fuck anything and it doesn't mean anything and blah, blah, blah. And it, it literally, they watch it destroy a relationship like five minutes later. I don't think you can just divorce feelings from the physical act. I think the physical act is intertwined with our biological stimuli and our emotional psyche. I think anytime you engage in that kind of activity, some sort of part of you is interacting on that wavelength. And we see that happen with Lorraine and RJ's character. What they did to RJ was pretty fucked up. That's why I didn't really like the characters in this movie.
2: So uh, going off the... Sex divorcing from feelings, blah, blah, blah. One, I think it depends on the person. I think that for some, some people can, some people can't. Some people are monogamous. Some people are polygamous. Yeah. All people are different and we can't just make generalizations about all people. Um, And there is no right or wrong choice here. I think all the choices are equally valid.
1: We're going to have to disagree, uh, agree to disagree on that point, because I think a lot of people think they can do that. And I think most people can't. I think it's a rare person who's good at really doing things like meaninglessly. And I think a lot of the time, if they can do that meaninglessly with like someone else's body, it's because they don't have that much respect for that other person's body.
2: I didn't say most people, I'm not making any assumptions about statistics here because I don't know the statistics, but I am saying that different people are different and there will be some people who cannot do that and there will be other people who can do that.
1: Again, agree to disagree because I think we, we should I think we should make the assumption that most people can't do that because I think if we make the assumption that it's very varied and anyone can do it, and maybe we should try it, you, you're probably going to have a lot of people with hurt feelings.
2: That's a slippery slope. I feel like it 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 gets very much into shaming and polygamy if you ride that to its truest, which I'm not saying is what you're doing. I'm saying mm-hmm. that it is that slippery slope, and I don't want to make any assumptions.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm I'm trying to say with caution, you know, not yeah. necessarily with shame.
2: There, there is no shame in having a lot of sex. Like, it's it's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. Number two, this is only somewhat relevant because that's not what these people are doing. Like, in a lot of the porn industry, you will have sex with a person who you just met that day. Who mm-hmm. This is their job. This is your job. And then you have sex. And theoretically, it's all consensual. Sometimes it's a little shadier than that. But. In theory, it's all consensual. There's nothing wrong with pornography in its essence. There are issues in the industry that we're not going to get into right now because it's not important. What's different in this movie is that it is a troupe of actors who work exclusively together. Bobby Lynn and Jackson are literally in a committed relationship, and they're having sex with each other on screen. Jackson also has sex with the other women in the troupe, who they all know and are familiar with. Like it's, they're not having sex with strangers. They're having sex with each other. Can we really say they exclusively
1: do with each other? We can say that they're exclusively doing with each other on this movie. And what is uh, Maxine's boyfriend's name? Wayne, the producer. Wayne. Uh, It seems to me that Wayne's character in this movie doesn't have very much respect for Maxine as an actual person. He's kind of viewing her as like a cash cow. Wayne sucks. Yeah, he's like kind of an asshole. And and he's the one kind of like touting this idea that you can just like divorce yourself from sex and blah, blah, blah. And that's why he like talks RJ into shooting the scene, which, you know, I would just say RJ is being like a complete bitch and he gets totally cuckolded in the scene by doing it. Like you're the director. You should just be like, no.
2: So the difference here again is in it's, it's, it's basically young consent, really, that when like these people are. They are at least somewhat open, where they are saying, okay, you can have sex with this person when it's part of the job, blah, blah, blah. Lorraine and RJ have not had that conversation. They are not in an open relationship. They are in a monogamous relationship. And RJ does not handle it well when Lorraine wants to do other stuff that he kind of just starts to get super possessive of her, but also, like, no, yeah, he's right to be upset. Like, she, he, she's essentially cheating on him and making him film it.
1: Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's completely degrading. He's cuckolded in the worst sense of the word. Everything he does up until he agrees to do it is right. And I mean, yeah, he gets a little possessive of her, but she's putting him on the spot, which is humiliating. Mm-hmm. And then she further humiliates him much more.
2: It is a private conversation that they should have separately.
1: Yeah. And it's also like they they coerce him into doing it. And in a way, they, they do not try to advise her against it. Like- these are the people who have decided they're in on this type of lifestyle, which is an extreme lifestyle.
2: And something I thought of when RJ is having this conversation with Wayne, and yeah, Wayne is super manipulative and, uh, of him right here, and what, Wayne sucks. RJ points out like, oh no, you could stop her. Wayne is like, oh no, there's no stopping her once she's made up her mind. And I'm just like, here's a thought. What if it were Pearl instead? What if Pearl had come up and said, I want to be in the movie? Then Wayne would have been like, leigh. "Nope, you can't do that. I'm gonna stop you." So, yeah, RJ's right.
1: Which I mean, I mean, since we're talking about one of the grossest industries in the world, I mean, like a modern pornographer, if Pearl came up and asked, would have been like, "Fuck yeah, this is gonna sell more tapes," which is fucking, you know, whatever. But yeah, I have like no love for the porn industry. They're they're pretty disgusting. Oh, really? Yeah, the way they do their practices, like, I'm sure some of it is fine. I'm sure some of it is fine out there, but probably not
2: most of it. You should watch the movie Pleasure about a a young porn star. Yeah. Fantastic movie. It's very nuanced. It is. I, I would describe it as sex positive, and I would say that it, it kind of backs up a lot of my views where it, it it's there's nothing wrong with porn in theory but there are issues in the industry that Pleasure absolutely addresses and gets into and there's yeah. some very fucked up stuff that happens in that movie just don't, don't don't watch it in any situation where your parents might walk in because they will be confused
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i think that that's, that's <laughs> that might be a little obvious but i mean also if you're interested in the the porn industry you could watch Hot Girls Wanted which used to be on Netflix which talks about kind of like lower end porn and like the way they kind of manipulate girls to get into there and the kind of practices they do, which are pretty fucked up. And then also if you want to watch like uh, maybe one of the other extremes, you can watch Rocco, which is like, he's one of the uh, main porn stars of the modern era. And, you know, he's just a complete fucking egomaniac. I mean, the guy's comparing himself to Jesus Christ. while he's fucking two girls at the same time. This is not, (laughs) it's probably not a healthy lifestyle. I, I meant to say this before we were comparing the characters. Uh, I, I guess I was wrong because there's a lot of direct comparisons between Howard's character and Kid Cudi with Jackson Hole in the hmm. movie because they're both Marines and the hmm. one guy fucks all the time. The other guy's like, my heart's gonna go if I fuck, you know. So there's th- that jealousy exists with both the characters. That's interesting.
2: I like that. Like Jackson and Bobby Lynn, I think are uh, that those, those are Kid Cudi and Brittany Stowe's characters. I, I feel like they are pretty sex positive in like a way that th- their their relationship seems fairly healthy. Like, I don't think we're given any red flags from them like we are given with Wayne and Maxine or with mm-hmm. RJ and Lorraine, where Lorraine seems to maybe want more than RJ uh, is interested in giving. Not, not even that he can't give it, just that it's not something he's interested in that she's interested in and there there might be some repression issues there that they would need to deal with separately and then Wayne is just really possessive of Maxine Bobby Lynn and Jackson seem pretty healthy
1: <laughs> Yeah I I would argue probably not but I mean we don't really know uh we don't know anything about their lives outside of this movie except that you know he feels like he's the man cuz he's in this these types of movies and she's she enjoys the movies too it's pretty obvious but uh That she's using this as a means to an end, which is like a materialistic end. Whereas Maxine wants to be the like star. She wants to be a sexual icon. And that's Mm. why Pearl is so drawn to her. Because the thing that's missing in her life is the thing that defines this other woman's life. And they're also psycho murderers. Just fucking cuz. Like, I don't really understand why
2: they feel the need to kill these people. I mean,
1: they're just psycho murderers. Okay.
2: Well, it's implied that there's some rape going on.
1: With, who who's raping who pearl pearls raping who
2: uh people that she kills there's like the one guy that they have killed and strung up in the basement with like his dong hanging out oh oh um,
1: she's 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 a necro
2: i, I yeah that that was the, that or she's just having sex with them and then killing them after so they don't tell anyone that was that was the understanding I arrived at
1: ah Oh, that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe I I didn't get that, but uh, I probably just didn't miss it.
2: I mean, they locked Jenna Ortega up in there alive. And that the implication I got was that Howard did that for Pearls so that she could have this person and Pearls like, Oh, I want the other one.
1: I'm not sure what you want him for, but probably what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. I think they aren't going to say that outright because um, it kind of changed the tone a lot, but I think that is the implication.
1: Yeah. It'd make it, I don't know, it's weird. I don't she know. She
2: does crawl into bed with Maxine. And then Maxine is freaked out and she's like, I gotta wash with a lot of soap because she's super disgusted. And I'm just like, Well, yeah, you were you were just sexually assaulted. So I, I absolutely <laughs> understand what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah.
1: I it's also worth noting that it kind of seems like Howard is kind of dragged into this by Pearl. Like he doesn't necessarily want to kill all these people, but then he's like, Fuck, my wife killed him again. Gotta do it again. And it doesn't seem like this is the first time they've done it.
2: It's not the first time. they don't, I mean, again, they have the guy strung up from there, but I think they've been doing this for a long, long time. We might find out because we're getting a prequel to the movie, apparently, next month. Really? This month.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that.
2: This is a very timely episode to be doing because uh, this is dropping in September, and Pearl is coming out a few weeks after this drops. Okay. So I got a question about both the films.
1: It seems like X is like more sex positive. Would you think that Friday the 13th is kind of like under the surface?
2: Yeah, this is a question that I wanted to ask. I think it's talked largely about an ex, and maybe a little bit in Friday the 13th, but do do you think these movies are arguing that sex is a means to make you happy? Huh. Well, I would say that X, for instance, uh,
1: doesn't view sex in a positive lens, okay. actually. It seems like it's everyone's undoing, and it seems like people are using it for... A means other than uh, coupling or gaining connection with other people or even just like pleasure. Like pretty much no one is fucking to fuck except for Jackson Hole. And his is about like feeling like the man kind of, you know. We also have to mention like
2: the movie I think takes place in the 70s
1: when like overt racism was a little bit more prevalent than it is
2: today. 79, same year as Friday the 13th is set. Right. So like him
1: feeling like the man banging these white girls like is something that most guys in his position probably aren't doing. So it's almost like a social hierarchy. He's like gaining through these sexual uh, encounters on film in particular.
2: And then they draw again with all their match cutting. They draw a parallel. They have Lorraine and Pearl are sitting and at the dining table match cut with uh, Bobby Lynn and Jackson sitting at the table during their scene. And Bobby mm-hmm. Lynn gets up and whispers into Jackson's ear like, Oh, come with me before daddy gets home. And then because it's a match cut, it draws this idea that what's happening in the porno is what Pearl wants to do, that this is Pearl's fantasy.
1: Yeah, Pearl's trying to live out a fantasy. It's critical of trying to live out these fantasies in real life, I think. I also, I mean, part of it is I really don't think this is an extremely well-thought-out film. Um, I don't think any of Ty West's movies are super well-thought-out thematically, so there's kind of a lot of ideas and i don't know if they all coalesce in like a neatly tied off bow but it is interesting
2: i think they do i think in some ways they raise more questions than they answer necessarily but i don't think that's a problem like it's definitely asking about can sex make you happy but i don't think it's reaching a definitive answer necessarily hmm. but i would
1: argue that no one is happy But well, obviously it's a horror movie, so no one's happy, but no one seems like they're even like gaining happiness through this. Like there's a director trying to turn like a smut movie, like into something greater. And it seems like by doing that, it's it's almost saying that's like a futile endeavor, which is too bad because there are films of that era that are quite good that are smut or whatever.
2: And he backpedals the moment it becomes someone he knows.
1: Well, not exactly. I mean, like. There are plenty of things that you think are awesome, but you don't want, you know, your significant other to do, you know, (laughs) like I'm a huge enthusiast of like UFC, but like my best friend was going to do it. I knew he would get fucked up. I'd be like, don't do that. You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, I could be like a race car driver and be like, don't want my wife to fucking do it. You know, that that doesn't mean you're being a hypocrite at all. You know, you (laughs) could be a cameraman for porn. It doesn't mean you want your girlfriend to do it. I, I don't think there's any conflict there.
2: I actually love Lorraine's character. I find her so interesting. They, they call her Church Mouse. So she's closer to the virginal stereotype than any of the other characters in the movie. Um, even though she's not, she's in a monogamous mm-hmm. relationship. But she is closer to that stereotype. Uh, but she's not the final girl. And when she sees all this porn stuff, she's like, oh, I kind of want to do that, actually. I kind of feel like all this repression is bad for me. And I think that Maybe that's where the movie nuances its argument, that it's not just saying that, like, yes, this sex isn't necessarily making any of the characters happy. I do not get the impression that Maxine is happy for this life she's chosen. But Lorraine's also not happy for not choosing it. That in some ways, maybe it's just that neither of these approaches is good. That it's putting too... We're all putting too much weight on sex, maybe.
1: Maybe. I don't know. If it's making a, a claim like that... I. I do think it's making statements about like how we value people through sex and maybe that definitely is kind of broken. Like for instance, like Howard is taking on this air of like prudishness because he's trying to steer his wife away from it. Not necessarily because Hmm. he finds anything wrong with sex, just that he's incapable of giving it to her like physically, which is not wrong. Like he'll die if he bangs her, which ends up sort of happening like. He has a heart attack probably because of the extreme stress of the situation, not just because he blew his load. (laughs) I think Lorraine, to me, just acts so much like a teenage girl. Like, she acts like girls I've dated in high school and problems, people I've spoken to, you know, that kind of like rashness to their decision making, the allure of things. Like, being in pornographic movies, I think, is alluring to both sexes or, or any kind of sex, whatever gender thing you have going on. There's an allure to being exhibitionist.
2: Yeah, of course. Who hasn't thought about it? Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but what's also interesting is that then the movie further twists this idea that they've been calling Lorraine Church Mouse the whole time. Now she's not. Now she's part of the movie. And then we later find out that actually Maxine is the Church Mouse.
1: Wait, wait, how's Maxine the Church Mouse?
2: Her father is literally the televangelist on the television. Oh, Oh, <laughs> did, oh you, yeah. did you did okay. you blank out during that reveal? <laughs> I think I forgot. It's a little bit of a forgettable reveal. It's kind of like, oh, okay. But Maxine literally is someone who was raised up in this evangelical church and then ran away and became a porn star. Her father is like the guy who's out getting Ronald Reagan elected.
1: So... Compared to Friday the 13th, I mean, what do you think each of these films is saying about your social value in terms of like your sexual appeal or your mm-hmm. sexual practices and what those do to your social value? Because a lot of people have argued that Friday the 13th, uh, at least the villain from the villain's perspective, they're punishing people for engaging in sexual activity and thus their social value diminishes.
2: And I think that's very accurate. I think Friday the 13th is definitely making a point, either consciously or not, that people having sex in this era are less of people because of it, or they are viewed as less of people because of it. Uh, this is before AIDS, but AIDS would become a thing very shortly afterward.
1: Yeah, actually, I think uh, some of the first cases of AIDS were like discovered a year after Friday the 13th came out.
2: Well, AIDS had been around for a long, 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 long time.
1: Yeah, I think some of the first cases in the US were found, okay. like documented like in the eighty one or something, which is a year after the release of yeah. Friday thirteenth, maybe even less than a year, depending on the month. So like it was within the zeitgeist of the eighties to view sexual deviancy as punishable and sinful, more mm-hmm. so than it was in the two decades prior, right? It was kind of a reversion yep. back to family values like we were mentioning earlier. And X, I think, is doing this much less subtly than Friday the 13th, if it is in there, uh, like we stated, that a lot of these prudish people who are or Reaganites or whoever, are actually just covering up their real sexual desires to put on an air uh, for some sort of effect, right?
2: I don't know, because I don't, I don't think that Pearl and Howard are argued as Reaganites. The main Reaganite in a movie would be Maxine's father, who we only see on the television.
1: Yes, but they come across as prudish. That's my point, that Reaganites and prudish people, not necessarily Reaganites. But okay. they're putting on this air of prudishness for the effect it creates. Now, the effect theirs is creating is to try to calm Pearl down because Howard will die if he bangs her. But <laughs> for the like the televangelist, he's doing that to gain more followers and thus more money and social credit, etc., etc. That underneath the surface, like this animalistic urge to propagate through sex is something that most people feel. And to cover it up is probably negative. And I think even the repression they're feeling is part of what, well, I don't know, Pamela Voorhees has a few different things going on. Like hers is vengeance for her son. And the other thematic element is kind of on top of the character rather than formed from the character
2: x explicitly states that repression is bad whether or not you think that's what the movie is saying that's what some of the characters say and then we're given an example of that through lorraine who winds up acting out and going way too far but then we're also it also then throws in this question of okay but what about people who who can't have sex like howard and pearl and what does it say about them and it 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 almost Where in Friday the 13th, the sexual hierarchy is if you have sex, you are less of a person. In X, it takes all these people who at least want to have sex and shows that if they can't, then they're less of a person. That flips the dynamic on its head where now the old people are the disposable ones who society doesn't give a shit about. Mm, That's a really good point.
1: I guess I, I can ask you the same question that we asked about Pamela Voorhees is like, do you find Pearl and Howard sympathetic characters? I, for one, do.
2: I do too, which is weird because Pearl's a fucking rapist murderer, but I'm really sympathetic to her. <laughs> yeah, me
1: too. Because like that character, everything barring the murder and kidnapping and rape, Potential rape and whatnot. Like, she's super sympathetic. Like, she's just someone who used to have this valuation and then she's lost it.
2: She's so sad
1: and miserable. I know. And I feel bad for Howard, too. Like, because at the end of the day, he's really looking out for his wife. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I'm almost more sympathetic to him because he's really looking out for his wife. We were talking about like slashers versus neo slashers, and Friday the 13th, like, is the slasher formula. It is the epitome of what a slasher movie is. And they're all kind of like based on that. Um, At least the typical ones like Sleepaway Camp. I I mean, even honestly, like Black Christmas, even though it predates it, is basically Friday the 13th. X is so fucking close to this slasher formula. I almost want to say it's a slasher rather than a neo slasher. Although it flips some of the themes on its head, it's not like a scream, you know, it's Uh,
2: So people have never heard the term neo slasher. Can you explain what that means? Neo slasher is kind of just like the next
1: generation of slasher films. It usually means that it tweaks the formula in some way. So a Neo slasher would be like Jason X a slasher in space. And there's usually a slash in there. Like literally there's like Neo slasher slash sci-fi or like a satire like scream, which would be Neo slasher satire. Um, but since X is pretty much just the formula of a slasher Almost in the same way of like, I know what you did last summer. I mean, are they really Neo? I, The only difference I think is like time. They just came out later. Do you think that it's really done much to change the formula of slashers in the way that Friday the 13th did?
2: Uh, I think it's oversimplifying things a lot. X is made with the tropes of slashers in mind. And it is aware of tropes and how people have responded to tropes. It came out after uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws was written. So it's clearly aware of all these things and playing off them intentionally. It's not just people having sex. People are making a porno. And mm-hmm. it does a lot to humanize the characters and to add nuance. No one in this movie is one-dimensional. I, I think it's it's a lot more complex than Friday the 13th, at least on the surface. I, I there's when we're, talk, when we're analyzing Friday the 13th, we're talking a lot about the political context around it. When we're analyzing X, we're talking a lot about the nuance within the movie.
1: Hmm. I think that's a fair criticism, um, especially since it seems like the script for X is, has more layers. I guess, like, do you think it's really changed the slasher formula? Do you think this is just like the new slasher? Because if you just increase the budget, the kills, the et cetera, et cetera, of a slasher, does it really change the essence of being a slasher? Because you know, if you talk about Scream like that, is a neo slasher satire, you know, because it satirizes what is in
2: there. This plays into like the whole thing about noir versus neo noir. And for a long time, I was always asking, like, what, why even make a difference? And what was eventually explained to me is that a neo noir is always made knowing it's a noir. That noir was like basically just a grouping of different movies that were made in the same time period and saying, oh, look at all these tropes that they have in common. Hmm. And then neo-noir is, we know that that's what we're doing, now let's do that. And to some extent, I think even when X conforms to the slasher formula, it's doing so intentionally. It's not doing so because this is what's popular right now. It's doing so because it said, what if we actually just do things the way they did in the 80s? It changes a lot to me that X is not made because this is a commercially viable genre right now. Like it's, it's, it's very aware of itself.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think it's fair, but what's cool is like a lot of neo-noirs are like neo-noir slash sci-fi or neo, neo slasher slash comedy, like a club dread or something or neo-noir slash satire, like scream. I think that X rests really comfortably in just a neo slasher, if not just a slasher film.
2: So real fast, I just want to give one shout-out to a YouTube video that inspired a lot of my direction, at least, for this. It's called Ronald Reagan, American Slasher. Of course Ronald Reagan has it. And it's by Renegade Cut. Uh, We'll link it in the description. It's a really good video. I think that channel is actually more about politics than about movie analysis, but they sometimes do so through analysis Mm of culture. And this one talks largely about slashers, but especially about Friday the 13th and how they relate to Reaganism and that era of the 80s. And it's a really good video. I strongly recommend it.
1: I watched that video too, and I really enjoyed it. And it was very enlightening. Mm. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the review section. In this section, we review each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. So David, starting us off, what do you think of Friday the 13th?
2: (sighs) Friday the 13th is okay. I mostly respect it for the cultural influence that it has and its place in horror history. I enjoy the sequels more, especially the later sequels when they get very, very silly. (laughs) This first one, I think, takes itself a little bit too seriously and is a little bit dull and just kind of boring um i like pamela a lot in some ways i think she's even more interesting than jason but there's just not enough for her to hold the movie and so many of the kills are off screen i forgot about that like why the entire appeal of the movie is watching the kills why are half of them off screen i really like the score a lot and pamela is great but it's just so boring and hard to get through (sighs) i'm torn between one and a half and two i'm sorry i was just really bored I'm going to give it one and a half. Oh God, the
1: horror classics. The diehards are not going to be happy with their review score. Um, They're not going to be that happy with mine. I, I got to tell you, I think this entire series like threads between one and a half and two and a half bones. Yeah. Uh, one of the best things about it is the cover, that iconic cover of the silhouette with hmm. Camp Crystal Lake in the, within the body of the silhouette is so fucking cool. <laughs> and, and it's worth noting that the guy who uh did the score, he did the score for pretty much all of the movies. I felt like this movie had a lot of good suspense, and it's really not fair knowing the twist before you watch it because all the kills happen off screen because there is a mystery unveiling, but it wasn't done super good because we don't get the story of Jason until after the fact. If we add the story of Jason, you're like, Jason's doing these killings. Then you find out it's actually his mother. I'd be like, holy shit. See, yeah. like as a fan of the series, the first time I saw it, that's what happened. That really got me. I thought it was Jason the whole time. And then I found out as a mother, it's like, whoa, what the fuck? But that unveil isn't in the movie. That's just in the fan base.
2: Scream spoiled it for me.
1: I, I do like Friday the 13th, the original. I think it's good. I think it's kind of scary at points. Um, there is a lot of suspense that I really enjoy. And some of the kills still hold up. Like when Kevin Bacon gets stabbed through the neck, when that mm. girl gets the axe in the face, and when Pamela gets her head cut off at the very end, mm. those are awesome. And the very end of the movie, I know it's such a horror trope, but it looks so cool. I do think everything you said is true. I think it's a little slow. The acting is pretty bad. And there's like a dead zone in the middle of the movie that's pretty hard to get through. So for that, I'm gonna give it two bones. So now, coming from the Shadow Realm, we have Devin Shefford's reviews.
0: Admittedly, I obviously was away from this episode. I was traveling, so I didn't have the opportunity to rewatch this movie. And it's been a few years, so I'm just going to give a very like concise review from what I can remember about Friday the 13th. I like this movie a lot. I remember it being like one of the purest slashers I've ever seen. I'm so happy that like I agree if it's in so well with all the rules that were discussed here today. The kills are fucking fantastic. The twist is Great. I mean, come on. That's amazing. The acting is fun. Again, the kills are amazing. <laughs> I think it also was one of the first films to like really lead to this terrifying idea about summer camps. I know there were like a bunch before, but I think like this one, like especially was so terrifying and really stood out and it started a franchise for a reason, you know, and it created one of the greatest monsters of all time and the ending. Like, come on, the ending is so perfect and so beautiful. It's a reason why it's a meme that we see on the internet again and again and again. So I'm going to give this one three bones.
2: Wow, that was so interesting, Devin. I have no idea what you said because you're recording it at a different time. But that was really interesting, whatever you said. I may or may not agree with you.
1: Yeah, Devin, I definitely either agree or disagree with whatever you said, either closely (laughs) or in the extreme. So now, but now for a second film, I got to tell you, I know that David and I are going to have a big major disagreement here. So let me know what you thought about X. I fucking love X.
2: The script is so interesting and layered and every line is perfect. Like literally every line could have been the little quote that I would give after the theme song at the end of the episode. You guys know I do that. I could do it with any line in this. The acting is great. Mia Goth playing both roles is I literally didn't know she was playing both roles the first time I saw this. Um, And it's even better on a rewatch because now I do know all these things. and I'm able to see all the clever things that they're doing with like the match cuts and whatnot. Beautifully shot. I mean, we're talking about how Friday the 13th is well shot. This X is on a whole other level. I mean, this is like freaking master class cinematography. I love the, the filmmaking in this movie interesting editing they do some weird things with like when they cut back and forth between scenes they have these weird transitions where it, like flickers that's interesting and they have a whole split screen sequence guys we need more split screen movies split screen is awesome and people need to use it more um and this one they do it when britney snow is singing landslide and like just hearing landslide which is a song about getting older and regretting the choices you've made and wondering if there's any going back well, while showing both the young people and Pearl at the same time is like so effective and moving. And I, I, j- I just love the empathy that it shows toward every character, including the villains. If you see any horror movie that came out this year, make it X. I'm giving this three and a half bones. Wow. Uh, yeah.
1: So I, uh, I sort of agree with some of that. <laughs> don't really like this movie that much uh there's a lot of cool parts i actually like the first half much better mm. than the second half and i think 99 of that goes to the lackluster kills i just don't think the kills are that good and i think as a slasher film you got to get creative there's little to no suspense the crocodile's fucking cool crocodile is right? cool and there's a lot of boobs which is cool so like it's it's pretty good it's just like kind of a passable uh slasher I feel like there could have been a lot more going on with the villains. I just didn't really get into them a lot. And a lot of it was just about, ew, old people, gross. And like they were squishy. And it was a little gross, but like that sex scene between Howard and Pearl is like pretty nasty, but it's like nasty on purpose. And like, I get it, you know, weird. I'm
2: the only one who's
1: moved by that scene.
2: I think it's so sweet.
1: (laughs) Oh, weird. Uh, But good for you, man. Like, why not? I just felt like there was a lot more they could have done with this movie, and it's too bad they didn't go there. And also, I just think it should have been more extreme. I felt like it was way too tame for my taste. It's a movie X about people doing a porno in a farm where the two, the owners kill each other. I wanted a lot more blood and guts. And I think some of the kills in Friday the 13th are better than the kills in X, which is inexcusable. Like, you're a modern movie, and you're about a porn. Like, go for it, guys. I want to see blood and guts. Like there should have been more entrails. There fucking weren't, and that pissed me off. That aside, I thought the acting was very good, and a lot of parts were really good. So I'm going to give it two bones. It's pretty good, but it could have been a lot fucking better.
2: That that's fair. I understand the wanting more blood and guts. It definitely doesn't have as many. Friday the Thirteenth has. Oh, there's something I want to mention. Amazing kills. What's up? I
1: didn't realize Mia Goth got her start in *Nymphomaniac*, which is a Lars Van Trier movie. Yeah. I just fair. I can't believe I forgot to mention that whole thing. Like she's awesome.
2: I saw this in theaters with Devin, but I forget all your opinions, Devin, so please enlighten us.
0: Again, I didn't get to watch this one for the pod, so it's been, I guess, a couple months since it first came out. Um, I actually saw it with David. I loved this movie. There's a reason why Ty West keeps coming back to being one of the greatest modern indie horror directors I just I I love everything that he does. And I'm so glad that he, you know, is coming back to horror after his stint in Westerns. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They were bloody and gory and like still horrific. But I'm so happy to have him back. His films are always an homage to the genre, and he's just such a fan. And it's it's so nice being a horror movie fan, watching these films and being like. Oh yeah, like horror movies are beautiful and like they are amazing. And I think that's what Ty West does so well in his films. Love him as a director. I fucking love this cast. Oh my God, it's a, they're amazing. I love them coming together. There were so many creepy moments in this film. I think overall the filmmaking was really strong. I think the script writing was really strong. Yeah, there were a few moments here and there that like I didn't necessarily agree with. The kills are a little subpar to me. Um, The whole thing with the crocodile just wasn't really like that thrilling to me. But I will say most of this film to me sums up in that one scene when Pearl is dancing in front of the red lights of the car. And that's just something, that that scene will stick with me for, I think, a very, very long time. I know it sounds like I'm going to give this like a really high score, and now I'm debating it, but I think because I've only seen it once, and because it's so new, I have to give this three bones. I love this film, and and maybe I'll give it more down the lane, but yeah, three bones.
1: Wow, Devin, that was a great point. I I never thought of that. I agree
2: or disagree with everything you just said. Either
1: buy a lot or not that much. Exactly.
2: One of those. (laughs) That was definitely a review.
1: Definitely a review with bones. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for this week, guys. I hope we weren't too naughty for you. And I want all our mangy mutts to get back to their mating rituals. Until next time, it has been a Cadaver Dogs podcast. Peace out.
2: His name was Jason.